performing at the Waterfront Blues Festival on Tuesday, July 4th at 1 p.m. You can find out more about Ty and all his events at tycurtis.net, and you can get all the details on this year's Blues Fest and purchase tickets online at waterfrontbluesfest.com. If you can't be there in person, KBOO will be live-streaming the entire run, July 1st through the 4th, from noon to 10 p.m. each day. Jonesy, by the way, comes to you every other week on the second and fourth Thursdays of the month from 11 to 11.30 a.m. Tune in for our next show on Thursday, July 13th at 11 a.m. I'm your host, Ken Jones, no relation, saying hope to see you all again then. Welcome to an encore episode of Words and Pictures, the show about the narrative arts. I'm S.W. Conser, and today I'll be taking you back to May of 2012, when I was joined in the studio by celebrated cartoonist Alison Bechtel, creator of the long-running comic strip Dykes to Watch Out For, and author of the graphic memoirs Fun Home and Are You My Mother? After this conversation aired, Fun Home was adapted into a Tony Award-winning stage musical, and in 2014, Allison herself received a MacArthur Genius Grant. Allison may be best known for the Bechtel Test, which asks whether a particular film features at least two women characters who talk to each other about something other than a man. The Bechtel Test originated in a 1985 episode of Dykes to Watch Out For. And now, Allison Bechtel, recorded on May 12, 2012. Alison Bechtel, it's a real pleasure to have you on KBOO this morning. Thank you, Conch. I'm so psyched to be here. KBOO is like the place I did, I think, my second ever radio interview in 1988. Wow. Yeah. So speaking of uh, going back to the 80s. Let's go back to the 80s. Let's go back to the 80s because I was at Santa Cruz in probably 1984, and I remember that I saw this comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For, and it at the time, it was almost like like a gag strip, jokes about the scene and the lifestyle. And uh, pretty quickly, though, it developed into this sprawling ensemble drama, almost out of Robert Altman. <laughs> yeah, I started out doing single-panel comics. That's cool that you saw that. That was like the really earliest stuff. Um, like field guides to different kinds of lesbians where I would give them, you know, like Latin genus names. But... Um, I love stereotypes. Uh I have no problem with stereotypes. I am a stereotype. Well, one of the things that was interesting about reading uh, Are You My Mother was you depicted all of these people that you had been in relationship one way or another, and I recognized definite uh, inspirations for characters that uh, developed in Dykes to Watch Out For. (laughs) Yeah, there are some correlations there if you read closely. Uh, One of the steady set pieces, so to speak, of Dykes to Watch Out For is Mad Women Books. And I noticed that as the economy has changed and as technology has changed and everything like that, Mad Women Books is almost like a, a character in itself that... Um, that dies bit, off. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was really uh, sad to close the bookstore and the comic strip. Um, and eventually, it was like that was like a little precursor of ending the comic strip itself, which I did uh, four years ago. 
Um, now, you sort of put it on a hiatus. Or did I you said I was going to put it on hiatus, but I have to, like, I, I have to admit that I'm not going to start the comic strip again. Um, yeah, you sort of left some characters hanging. I did. I, I did not resolve anything. I, I, I really intended to come back to it, but four years later, I, I just have to acknowledge that I, I don't feel the same passion for it that I once did. And it, uh, what I'm really excited about now is doing this memoir stuff, is figuring out my family. And I feel like Dykes to Watch Out For enabled me to like carve out a space for myself to tell this very weird, queer, bizarre family saga. I couldn't have done that in the 80s. You know, a general audience would have been completely closed to hearing about this stuff. But now, um, apparently, it's something people are willing to take a look at. So that's kind of cool. I miss I miss Dykes to watch out for, but I, I can always watch Portlandia. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember you saying that one of the reasons uh, you were so relieved to move from the comic strip Dykes to watch out for to Fun Home, the graphic novel, was that you wanted to get more imagery out there, and uh, you wanted to spend more time on the art, and Dykes to Watch Out For was becoming so text-heavy. I know. I, I Once I did a word count, like comparing strips from the early 90s to ones in the early 2000s, and the, the word count had practically doubled in the same <laughs> space. And I was always, I mean, comics is always a struggle for space between the words and the images. Um, I feel like I... I kind of outgrew the comic strip form. Like, the kind of stuff I wanted to do just wasn't fitting in in that constrained space. I love constraint. I always loved working against that those tiny 10 or 12 panels and fitting a whole story in there. But um, I really like having a bigger field to spread out on. You know, when I was writing Fun Home, I didn't have any plan to follow it with a like a companion book about my mother that just sort of evolved really slowly. In fact, I was working on this book for several years before I really let it become a memoir about my mother. Yeah, you said you were restructuring it along the way. Yeah. Well, at first it was going to be about relationships, and then I realized it was really about the relationship. You said you weren't planning on a companion book, but uh, it's interesting to me that in Fun Home, the accent color was a cool aqua, and then in uh, Are You My Mother, it's this hot crimson. Yeah, you know, that's not as like symbolic as one might like to think, because <laughs> there really aren't that many options. If you're doing a two-color printing process, uh-huh. which I'm doing in both of these books, um, and you're using a kind of naturalistic color schema you know, where the color actually is representational, there's not a lot you can use. You can't really use purple or orange or yellow. Mm. So pretty much something in the green-blue family and something in the red family are kind of your only options. So I'd already used green. I wanted to differentiate the new book, so I used red. But I do like that there's a kind of brownish-red, a blood-like quality to the book about my mother, kind of symbolic of our, our physical connection. You come from a very literary household, and uh, and you've made the words in both of these books an art in themselves. The, yeah. Uh, when I do the quotations from books, that's mm-hmm. all hand-lettered. Yeah, and, well, the shading is all watercolor. It's none of that Photoshop uh, halftone. Yes. Um, you know, when I started shading Fun Home, I was experimenting with doing it in Photoshop, and I kind of liked the way it looked, but I showed it to 
the cartoonist Ariel Schrag, and she said, oh, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. It's too, like, you got to do it all in your own hand. So she was right, and I did. Are you a fan of Linda Berry? Oh, yeah. I love uh, she, her stuff. She talks about how she couldn't get going on this word processor, getting right. this project done, so she got a crayon and a whole bunch of paper and just started writing that way. Yeah. She, well, she wrote a whole novel in longhand, didn't she? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I... I thought about Linda a lot as I was working on this book about my mother because the whole thing took me about six years, and honestly, for five of them, I hadn't really started drawing. I'd done a little bit of drawing, but it was very tortured and turgid, and uh, I'd be reading Linda's stuff about how you just have to pick up a brush, you just got to move your hand, and I'd see her speak, and I felt like, oh, man, I just, I can't, like, break out of this computer thing, but eventually... When I got my story written, I was able to start drawing, and I felt very freed up, and that was a great thing. I feel like I really would like for my processes to be a little more integrated, for for my drawing to come earlier, for my drawing to not be quite so studied and deliberate. I do many layers of sketches. I'm always looking at photo references and doing lots of poses, like taking pictures on my digital camera and using those as photo references. and I. My next goal in life is to have a more organic drawing process. You start every chapter of Are You My Mother with a Dream, and there's all this great archetypal imagery in there. And comics are so close to the dream state. Words are like a code. They're abstracted, but images are images are right there. They're straight up. They're, yeah, representational. And so, yeah, each of the chapters, there's a very vivid dream, a very meaningful dream. I know you're not supposed to write about your dreams. You know, that's like one of the first things they tell you. And God knows it's boring listening to other people even tell you about their dreams. But I did feel like at at a certain point it became clear to me that this sequence of dreams I had, a a point early in the writing of my memoir about my father, was kind of the backbone of the story of this new book about my mother. In a way, my, my memoir about my mother is a memoir about writing the memoir about my father, which is a little crazy. <laughs> this is kind of recursive, as you said. Um, but the dreams were, I just, I felt like I was in this really intense place of clarity as I was starting to write about my father and negotiating with my mother the fact that I was going to be doing this, telling her I was writing about my dad, I was going to be revealing these family secrets, showing her early drafts dealing with her reaction, dealing with my anxiety, anticipating her reaction. All these dreams happened at different points along that timeline, just filled with really interesting imagery about separating from my mother, sort of staging this psychic battle with her, and coming out, uh, I wouldn't say triumphant, but coming out not not vanquished. I'm S.W. Conser, and you're listening to an encore episode of Words and Pictures, featuring cartoonist Alison Bechdel, creator of the long-running comic strip Dykes to Watch Out For, and author of the graphic memoirs Fun Home and Are You My Mother? Yeah, there's a scene in Are You My Mother where your four-year-old self goes to see The Sound of Music, and um, there's Maria von Trapp, who 
has become sort of a lesbian icon to so many yes. people nowadays, <laughs> as played by uh, Julie Andrews. And you say in the book, and I want to make sure I get this right, um, okay, you, you're four years old and you say, I wanted her. And I'm wondering if you meant that as you wanted her as a mother, as a lover, or was it deliberately vague? I wanted her as all those things. I definitely, I want, also I wanted to be her. I wanted to have her. I wanted to be her. I wanted her to be my mother, my lover. Uh, you know, and she was all those things in the movie. She was this wonderful, like, enlivening mother to the Von Trapp children, these repressed kids. She, like, brings them back to life. She was a, a lover to Captain Von Trapp. You know, it was just like this really steamy, erotic connection between the two of them uh, that even a four-year-old could pick up on. And then there was the whole nun thing. I don't, you know, she was she was like a child to those nuns, and I I wanted to be. The nuns were like her mother, and I I, I was envious of that relationship too. You know, um, the mother superior calling Maria into her office, like all of those intimate relationships were so vivid, and I I just wanted part of all of them. There's a quote in the book where you said, uh, it was only my lesbianism and my determination not to hide it that saved me from being compliant to the core. And you recognize throughout the book that there's this compliance uh, in both your mother and yourself, these gender roles that are part of the society and, and just ingrained and they're really hard to overcome. Yeah, I got very interested in the idea of compliance. A, a lot of, my, of this book about my mother is about the psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott. And compliance for Donald Winnicott was like the worst thing for a person to do. Um, to comply to someone else's expectations kills you in some way, like shuts you down on a deep level. And I was always like such a good girl, you know, always did what was expected of me, was polite, got good grades, never asked for anything, never needed anything. But the, so the only thing I ever did to break out of that was to be a lesbian. And that's, you know, it was a pretty big like transgression at the time in the early 80s. But it, I do feel like it saved me. Um, it just kind of snapped me out of this narcoleptic middle class coma I had been in and enabled me to see see things from the outside because all of a sudden I was on the outside and had a perspective on things that I, I hadn't had before. And also also being a lesbian, I've, I've always been kind of a cerebral person and realizing I was a lesbian made me kind of have to grapple with my body, with desire in a, in a way that I would probably not have had to do if I had not been a lesbian. I would have just gone on autopilot you know, but I had to do a lot of thinking and struggling with it. Right. Donald Winnicott, the psychoanalyst, uh, talks about how the child will will get stuck in the mind yeah. uh, and not be embodied. Yeah. So you, you have that, uh, that split, that sort of um, Hellenistic split between mind and body, the, the psychosoma, as he calls it. Yeah. And, I mean, I still struggle with that, but... Uh, I would have been a basket case if I hadn't been a lesbian. You know, lesbian feminism really, really pulled me out of my mind in a big way. But before you did that one big act of coming out, like late 70s, did, it was when uh, you came out? November uh, 19th, 1979, ah. I came out <laughs> at like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, but before then, even, I mean, you were such a tomboy, you were such a butch kid that this really rankled your dad. Yeah. Oh, we had such bizarre gender dynamics in my family. So my dad was gay, or at least bisexual, mm. and he was like very, wanting... Very closeted. To, yeah, totally closeted. I didn't find out that he was gay until I came out to my family when I was 19. But he was always wanting me to be a, you know, more feminine, and I think, you know, he was using me as this... He went, was trying to express his own femininity through me in a way. And I, of course, was resisting that tooth and nail... And one of the people that um, makes an appearance, it's fun to see all of these historical characters who come in and out. Oh, a couple of people who make appearances are from the Bloomsbury set in England, um, uh, Virginia Woolf and Lytton Strachey. Uh, and, of course, that crowd, we forget that there was, I guess, the Edwardian equivalent of gender f- back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, totally. Those guys were all rebelling against the Victorian oppression they'd grown up with. Vita Sackville West and E.M. Forster and that crowd. Yeah. Um, Donald Winnicott was analyzed by James Strachey, Lytton Strachey's brother, which I thought was an interesting little connection. And yeah, there's this moment in the book where I, I have this imaginary meeting on the street where Virginia Woolf is out walking in Tavistock Park, um, getting her first flash of to the lighthouse, and Donald Winnicott passes her on his way to therapy in the next block with with Strachey. I'm fascinated by Winnicott's um, interest in very young children, even analyzing uh, children who were two or three years old. And I think a lot of people don't realize, or maybe they don't want to think about the self-consciousness even of three and four-year-olds, especially if they grow up in a family where that uh, consciousness gets turned back in. Yeah. He had amazing powers with little children. And I I loved reading this book, The Piggle, which is his own case history, his notes on this work he did with a, a kid who was two and a half when he started seeing her. And it's amazing. Like, he actually understands what, you know, can see through the babble of this child playing with toys on a floor to see the really deep psychic struggle she was having, um, you know, being replaced by a younger sibling. And he he was a genius. It was... And he I, talks about the separation from the mother, you know, because the mother at an early age is not really an other. It's an extension of the of the individual. I know. that That's the really amazing thing for all of us you know for whether you're male or female or whatever we're all part of our mother and that makes our relationships with that parent much more (laughs) complex and problematic and I feel like it's when I look at when I compare my book about my father and my book about my mother the book about my dad is it's kind of complex and recursive but compared to the book about my mother it's like totally straightforward it's a got a pretty clear narrative arc, whereas the book about my mother doesn't. And I think that's a reflection of just the the different nature of mothers. This reminds me, though, you had this sort of trauma about this erotic drawing that, oh, you, yeah, man. that you made at age seven. Yeah. And uh, it seemed like there was a very dominant male figure. Yeah. In it. I feel like I was, I was both the male figure and the female figure in that scenario in in equal parts, though I probably would only have acknowledged being the sort of 
aggressive male figure. <laughs> and it scandalized your mom. Well, it was it was a it was a disturbing image for a, for a parent to find a kid drawing. But you know, it was I now know that children have all kinds of depraved sexual thoughts. You know, just all of their own volition. Without <laughs> we're we're all sexual creatures from the get go. So, um, can you describe the drawing as you remember it? Do I have to? I wrote a whole book about it. Actually, that chapter was really, I would say, the hardest part of the book to write. I can't even hardly bear to read it. It was just, uh, yeah, no, we'll leave this as a little teaser. This will make people buy the book. Okay. (laughs) It was a sexual image, and I, 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 I discovered that I could draw these sexual fantasies, and it was an amazing feeling. You know, to feel sexual pleasure and realize I could create these images of my own fantasies, um, you know, at age seven. And I I stuck the drawings, I did a couple of them actually, and stuck them in with my other drawings. And somehow my mother knew something was up and went and found them. And like the next day after school, she said, Allison, and I, I had this memory of her not even seeing me but calling to me from upstairs so there was never any face-to-face confrontation and as soon as I heard the tone in her voice and realized she'd found the drawings I like hid (laughs) behind a door for like three hours and she couldn't find me and finally I came out and at that point she didn't say anything to me it was like my little exile had been penance enough and no one ever spoke about it again and in fact when I showed her the book she's like I don't remember that. <laughs> I've been walking around for 40 years, like, filled with shame about that, and she doesn't even remember. Howard Cruz talks about making his own erotic I know. Drawings. I've talked with Howard about that. Um, I hadn't known anyone else had ever done that, and then I read his, his comics about his little sex comics as a kid. Well, this is the power behind memoirs, is that suddenly people will pick these up, and sometimes they'll be stricken by the similarities that they thought were just the... Just their own weird self, but really everyone shares these things? Sure. Yeah. And I think there's an alienation in our society that, that is invested in making sure that we don't realize how much we have in common. Yes. Absolutely. That's uh, very well put. You know, I'm... I've always been fascinated with all these really amazing children's book authors who are gay or lesbian, you know, like this amazing kind of parenting they've given the culture at large, not having kids of their own, you know, because they're this older generation who were not gay people with children. But I I think of Maurice Sendak and Louise Fitzhugh, um, all the other people, Emmy Kerr, the way these gay people would make amazing children's literature. Anyhow, I remember when In the Night Kitchen came out, I think I was 10 or 11, and I was so excited to see this new amazing Maurice Sendak book, and I told my mom, I want this book, I want this book. And she said, oh, you just want it because it has a naked boy in it. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even know it had a naked boy in it. So I was really pissed off by that. (laughs) (laughs) So there's this erotic life of children, obviously, that, um, and I think... When you had no word for it as a child, that had to be, you know, tomboy is the word that gets used for girls who are acting butch in that way. Nowadays, people recognize it earlier. People recognize those gender identities that are developing faster. I know. It's, it's really amazing and makes me so happy to see people letting their children be whoever they are, you know. 
like you know little kids six seven if they want if it's a girl who wants to dress like a boy and it's amazing that people are letting their kids do that but what interests me is i feel like i really value very deeply the period of my life where i did not have concepts or language for my sexuality for the desire i was feeling you know i feel kind of bad for young gay people now because they, they they do know i don't really feel bad i'm so glad this progress has happened but something gets lost for me when i was first having sexual feelings it was like i had no idea what it was you know like young straight kids it's jammed down their throat from the get-go oh boys marry girls girls marry boys you will like have romances you know they have like toddlers flirting in m&m commercials but to be free of that to experience sexual desire without any kind of conceptual framework was an amazing thing and i don't think hardly anyone gets to do that anymore um so oh would you like to read an excerpt sure um, there's a short passage I know that will work without the pictures, if okay. I you want me to read that. Sure, yeah. Yeah, so uh, excerpt from Are You My Mother? Uh, okay, maybe, this maybe. is from chapter 1, page 13. I often think of this passage from Virginia Woolf's diary. What a disgraceful lapse, nothing added to my disquisition, and life allowed to waste like a tap left running, 11 days unrecorded. I started my own diary as a child, and when a spell of obsessive-compulsive disorder made my entries too time-consuming, my mother sat on my bed and took dictation. Getting her undivided attention was a rare treat. It felt miraculous, actually like persuading a hummingbird to perch on your finger. She was listening to me. Whatever I said, she wrote down. I found this calming, composing. My mother composed me as I now compose her. The running tap of her life flows through my fingers. Um, your OCD, your obsessive compulsive disorder, it, it made you self-edit yourself all the time. And, um, and then uh, your mother is helping you with your diary, but in that way she's getting more and more entrenched in your life. Yeah, I was like doing this elaborate like crossing out and blotting of my entries. Um, but that moment with my mom when she took dictation for me, I feel like that's the moment I became not just a writer, but uh, a memoirist. I mean, they, somehow that is my true calling, I think. Much to my mother's chagrin, she would much rather I write fiction, as I talk about in the book about her. But uh, I feel like she kind of made me a memoirist in that, that cathexis we had around the diary. Like, I was writing down my actual life, and she was writing it down as I told it to her. That was a really powerful exchange for me as a kid. So are you planning more memoirs? I am. Uh, I, I have to discuss this with my family, but I, I really want to keep writing about my family and about, about the idea of family. Um, I'm starting to, starting to research it, and I'm reading Margaret Mead. I've never read Margaret Mead. I'm, I'm reading Coming of Age in Samoa, and I'm kind of interested just in families First of all, just from an anthropological point of view, like not all cultures live in nuclear families, and what, why do we, and what does that give us? You know, be, coming out in the 80s as a lesbian, it was all, we were all about destroying the family, you know, smash the family, smash the state. But 
I'm seeing now as I get older that, yeah, families can be amazing. Families can be a, a wonderful force for good. So I'm kind of curious about what makes good families good and what makes bad families bad as a whole as a whole system like looking at the book about my mother that I just wrote is very much just about my mother I don't bring my brothers or my father into it very much and I really I'm curious about how the whole system of a family works or doesn't work I wanted to get one other uh, quote in here your mom is talking about how memoir serves the story it doesn't serve the family it oh yes yeah, so at the very end of the book she's quoting someone else she's quoting Dorothy Gallagher a really wonderful description of memoir um, we're in the car it's a couple pages back there oh yeah here she is uh, here's your mom quoting Dorothy Gallagher the writer's business is to find the shape in unruly life and to serve her story not you may note to serve her family or to serve the truth but to serve the story yeah, I, my, I remember my mom saying to me after reading that, family be damned. <laughs> but the story is uh, how we're wired, not even as humans, but as mammals, to, uh, to accept information in sequential order, in a narrative sense. Yeah, but it's not really there, you know? That's what's so fascinating to me. It, 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 our experience is just random and meaningless. And the excitement for me about memoir is 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 finding some thread through all of that. And I believe I believe believe I'm finding it and not imposing it, but maybe that's just what I like to think. Well, Allison, it's been such a pleasure to have you. Thank um, you, Conch. You. This was great. Please come back. See us again with another memoir. Okay, in another dozen years, maybe. <laughs> is that how long it took? Well, those each took like six or seven years, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, thank you so much. You've been listening to an encore episode of Words and Pictures, recorded in May of 2012, and featuring celebrated cartoonist Allison Bechdel, creator of the long-running comic strip Dykes to Watch Out For, and author of the graphic memoirs Fun Home and Are You My Mother? Allison's blog can be found online at dykestowatchoutfor.com. I'm S.W. Conser. Thanks to all our listeners on the radio dial and on the web. You can find an archived version of this show later today at kboo.fm slash wordsandpictures. And be sure to follow us on social media at wordsandpicture. Listening to KBOO Portland, listener supported community radio. Stay tuned for Shocks of Sheba, up next after these headlines. Bienvenidos a un breve informativo en su estación comunitaria KBOO 90.7 FM. Hoy, jueves 22 de junio del 2023. 
El secretario de Estado, Anthony Blinken, ha concluido un viaje de dos días a China. Se reunió con Xi Jinping en Beijing en un intento por estabilizar las relaciones entre Estados Unidos y China. Israel despliega helicópteros artillados Apache fabricados en los Estados Unidos en una incursión mortal en el campo de refugiados de Jenin. El ministro de Salud de Sudán dice que el número de muertos ha superado los 3.000 desde que estallaron los combates 